Chapter 6, Part 1 of Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Fixen. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter 6, Part 1. The Oregon farmer has one great advantage over his eastern or European brother. Starting from the 1st of January, he has until July, comes a good many days wherein he can amuse himself without a detestable feeling that he is wasting his time and robbing his family. The ground may either be too hard or too soft for plowing, or he may have sown a large portion in the autumn and early winter, and so have little ground to prepare and sow in the spring and he has little, if any, stock-feeding to do as yet. A good supply of hay is the only addition to the pasture-feed that he need to provide, so long, that is, as he is content to work his farm in Oregon fashion. Many a one is within reach of the hills where range the deer and shares in the feeling strongly expressed to me the other day. I would rather work all day for one shot at a deer than shoot fifty wild ducks in the swamps. As I was riding out to the hills not long since, I met an old friend of mine, returning from a week's hunt in the regions at the back of Mary's Peak. A roadside yarn. His long-bodied farm wagon held some cooking utensils, the remains of his store of flour and bacon and coffee, his blankets, his rifle, and the carcasses of his deer. With him were two noble hounds, Nero and Queen, powerful, upstanding dogs staghounds with a dash of bloodhound in them, black and tan with a fleck of white here and there. Had a good time, John? we asked, as he stopped at the top of a long hill for a chat. Well, pretty good. Ran four deer and killed three. Got my boots full of snow and bring home a bad cold, he answered. Where did you camp? Away up Stilson's there, pointing to the mountainside, where the heavy fir timber grew scattering and thin and the clean sweep of sloping crest came down to meet the wood. We was there inside of a week, hunting all the time. See any bear? Just lots of sign. But I guess my dogs haven't lost any bear. The old dog got too close and one bit ago, and came home with a bloody head and a cut on his shoulder a foot long. Find many deer? Had two on foot at once one day. Killed one and hit the other, but he jumped a log just as I shot and I guess I only barked him. I ran after him to try for another shot before he got clear off down the canyon, but I tumbled over a log myself in the snow and just got wet through, and my boots all filled with it. Pretty rough up there, isn't it? Well, it wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for the fallen timber, but you can't get through them woods fast when you have to run round the end of one big log one minute and then duck under another and then scramble on to the next for dear life and half the time you only get just in time to see the last of the deer as he gets into the thick brush. Better come out with us after the ducks, John. Blamed if I do, came out with an unction and energy that startled us. Can't understand what you fellows can see in that duck hunting, and with a cheery goodbye, the old boy spoke to his horse, and off they went down the hill. The brake hard held, and the wagon pushing the team before it on the rough corduroy road. Still hunting is the more sportsmanlike way, but the deadlier fashion in this hunting with two or three hounds, the slower they run, the more chance for the guns. 
One day last summer, returning from the bay, we stopped for the night at a farm by the roadside, among the burned timber. The fern had not grown up yet, but the hillsides were green and thick with salmonberry and thimbleberry growth. Two or three hounds, not of the very purest breed, but still hounds, were lounging at the door and greeted us with a noisy welcome as we dismounted. The sons of the house were telling round the fire before we went to bed of the hundred and thirty deer they had already killed this season. They urged us to have a hunt in the morning, promising to get all done so that we might be on the journey again by nine instead of seven. Breakfast was over by a quarter to six, and we started. Four in the party, two farmer's sons, and two travelers, and three hounds. The huntsman carried a Henry rifle of the old model, his younger brother a rifle of the old school, long, brown, heavy-barreled, throwing a small round bullet. Round the huntsman's neck hung an uncouth cow's horn to recall the hounds if they strayed too far away. Hunting with Hounds the sun was just driving off the early mist as we tramped along the road by the side of the river toward the spot where they intended throwing off. But before we reached the place, a quick little hound threw up her head and with a short, sharp cry dashed into the brush between us and the river. The other hounds followed, and we heard the plunge and splash as the deer, so suddenly roused from his lair, took to his heels. The hounds took up in full cry along the opposite canyon, which led high up the hillside, and the huntsman followed, his jacket changing color at once as he pushed through the dew-laden brush. Under the guidance of the younger brother, we crossed the river also, and, following the farther bank, soon came to an open grassy spot from the upper side of which a view was got the course of the river as it wound round the lower side in a graceful sweep. The trees, willow and alder, were thick on the bank, but here and there we caught more than a glimpse of the brown water as it hurried along. One of us being posted here, our guide took the other still higher up the stream. Sitting down under the lee of a big old log, its blackness hidden under the trailing brambles and bright ferns, we waited and watched. The cry of the hounds came faint on the air from the hillside above us hounds and quarry alike invisible, and, as the sides of the canyon caught the sounds, Echo returned them to us from all points, in turn fainter and still fainter, until we thought the chase had gone clear over the mountain into the distant valley beyond, and we sat watching the two little chipmunks, grown hardy by our stillness, which were chasing each other in and out among the brambles, then stopping to watch us with their bright black beady eyes. No sounds at all, and then far-off music, just audible and no more. But it comes nearer, and we see our guide creeping towards us, rifle in hand, his face white with excitement and suspense. He cannot resist the temptation of passing us to get command of the lower reach of the stream, and we have sympathy with its nineteen years and take no notice. Presently a distant splash in the river, and then scrambling and splashing along the water's edge, and we catch a glimpse of the bright yellow body flitting rapidly between the trees. The young hunter's rifle cracks, but the deer only gains speed and dashes by. There's a clear space of ten or fifteen yards between the three trunks on our right, and as the deer rushes past, we get a quick sight, almost like a rabbit crossing a ride in cover at home, and the Winchester rings out. Whether by luck or wit, we will not say, but the splash ceases suddenly, 
and, running to the bank, there lies the deer, shot through the neck and close to the head, drawing his last long breath. He was soon dragged out onto the grassy bank, and a feeling of pity was uppermost as we admired his graceful limbs, neat hoofs, and shapely head. In about ten minutes' time came the hounds, their eager cry ceasing as they caught sight of their quarry, lying motionless before them. The last hunter's rights were speedily paid, and we went a mile higher up the stream to where a brook joined in, following quickly down from the southern hill. The hounds were again thrown into the brush, and before long were once more in full cry. This time the shot fell to the young huntsman's share, and we saw nothing of the chase, till, hearing his rifle, and noticing the ceasing of the voices of the hounds, we pushed our way to the spot to find the obsequies of a second deer already in progress. Leaving one deer on a log by the roadside, with a note attached to it, asking the stage driver to pick it up and bring it for us into Corvallis. When he passed in a couple of hours' time, we retraced our steps, mounted our horses, and were on our road according to promise by very soon after nine o'clock. STILL HUNTING Still hunting is a more arduous business. The hunter has the work to do of finding the deer. His rifle must slay it. If he wounds it, he must follow it on foot. The only help he can get is that of one steady old dog, which must never stray from his side. Starting from his camp in the early dawn, he mounts the hillside, carefully examining each likely spot of brush as he passes it, taking special note of each sheltered patch of fern. Very carefully, he climbs the logs, avoiding every dead branch that may crackle under his weight, and parting the brush before he pushes through. When he reaches the crest, he follows it along, scrutinizing every canyon closely, for his prey lies wisely hidden. At last, he sees a gentle movement in the brush, and the deer rises from his lair, stretches his neck, arches his back, and snuffs round at each point of the compass, to try if there be danger in the air. The hunter sees his chance judges his distance as cleverly as he can, remembering that in this clear mountain air he's almost sure to underestimate the range. The shot rings out, and the deer springs high into the air, to fall crashing down the steep canyon side. The common deer of western Oregon is the black-tailed Cervus columbianus. In the early spring many of them leave the mountains and traverse the valley land to the closely timbered sloughs and brush bordering the Willamette River. But as the valley has been more closely cultivated, and the farms spread in a nearly unbroken line, the deer have but a poor chance. Some settler is almost sure to get a glimpse of the visitor as he tops the snake fence onto the oat field for his morning feed, and the rifle, or worse, the long muzzle-loading shotgun which he carries, five buckshot at a charge, hangs by or over the wide fireplace. If not killed outright, the poor beast carries with him the lingering and dangerous wound. But, away in the hills, I do not hear that the number is appreciably diminished. Many of the hunters get a deer almost every time they go out. So wasteful are they that they carry off only the hindquarters, which they call the hams, and the hide, leaving the forequarters and head to taint the air. The white-tailed deer, Cervus lucerus, is now very rare. He frequents the more open spots. He chooses the bare slopes at the top of Mary's Peak and the Bald Mountain. He is not so shy as his black-tailed brother, and so falls an easier victim to the rifle. He abounds in the Cascade Range on the eastern side of the Willamette Valley. 
and he is found in the same haunts as the larger mule deer. The noblest deer we have in Oregon is the wapiti, Cervus candanesis, invariably known in this country as elk. A day or so ago I saw a pair of fresh horns standing in front of one of those stores in the town, which were quite four feet six inches long, spread three feet inches at the tips, and weighed forty pounds by scale. Elk. As we handled them, a dry-looking, bearded, long-booted fellow joined the group. Those horns are nothing much, said he. I killed an elk sometime back in the Alsea County, back of Table Mountain, that when we set the horns on the ground, a fellow could walk up right through them. Oh, yes, said we. Did you walk through them, stranger? Well, no, I guess not, said he. But a feller might, you know. The elk go in bands from seven to twenty in number, and their tracks through the woods are trampled as though a drove of cows had passed along. To kill an elk, you cannot go out before breakfast and return to dine. You must secure a good guide who knows the mountains well, and you must take a pack-horse with food and blankets as far into the wilds as the last settlement reaches, and there leave him. Then, slinging your blankets around your shoulders and packing some flour, bacon, and coffee, a small frying-pan and coffee-pot and tin cup into the smallest possible compass, and taking your rifle in your hand, not forgetting the tobacco, you must strike into the woods. When night comes on, build your fire, fry your bacon, make some damper in the ashes, smoke the pipe of peace, and lie down under the most sheltering bush. No snakes will harm you, nor will wolf or cougar molest you, and the softness of your bed will not tempt you to delay long between the blankets after the first streak of dawn. Rise and breakfast, then on again. All that day, perhaps, you will have to tramp on and on, seeking one mountain slope after another. Here, skirting brush too thick to penetrate, there, walking easily through the low fern among the massive red and furrowed trunks of the gigantic firs. Your guide finds sign and reports that it is not fresh enough to follow, so pursues his course till, looking back on the devious miles of weary wandering, you can hardly credit it that you have been but eight and forty hours on the trail. But your camp is pitched once more, and dawn has aroused you from your ferny bed. Listen! The branches are crackling and rustling close by. You and your guide race for the spot, rifle in hand, too eager, almost, to duly remember woodland rules of caution. Crouching and crawling as you get closer to the sounds, peering through the fern, you see, what, six, eight, ten, twelve, and seventeen great beasts, one with enormous head, two others with smaller but still imposing antlers, the rest the mothers of the herd. Unconscious of danger, they browse round, both rifles speak together, and the monarch and one of the smaller stags lie prostrate. You stay hidden, the deer group together in a confused crowd, too foolish and excited to think of flight. Again your comrade fires, and another falls, and yet another till, in disgust at all the needless slaughter, you step from your shelter, and the survivors rush madly away, crashing through the wood, as if a herd of cattle were in flight. I have known men, not usually cruel or excitable, get so maddened in a scene like this, that seven great elk lay dead together before they thought of stopping firing, and yet they knew that from the wilderness they stood in it was impossible to carry off the meat of even one. Many hunters prefer elk meat to any deer. 
Others think the fawn of the white-tailed deer is the best eating in the world. Camp on Beaver Creek. One night last summer, we camped out on Beaver Creek, nine miles to the south of the Yakina, along the beach. We had been trout fishing all day from a canoe, and were glad to stretch out before the fire. Limbs that had been somewhat cramped from the need of balancing the rocking craft with every cast of the fly. Before the fire stood roasting a row of trout held in place over the hot embers by a split willow wand. We heard voices approaching through the wood, and presently a half-breed hunter and two friends of ours came in sight. They had been out two days after elk, but failed to find. On the way back they came across a doe and a well-grown fawn, the latter they had killed, and brought it in. It was speedily skinned and cut up, and a loin, shoulder, and leg were skewered on sticks and roasting in the blaze. No bad addition to our fish supper, deer meat and trout. The coffee was the only contribution of civilization to the meal, and a merry evening extended far into the night followed, as the logs were piled on, and the ruddy glow and showers of sparks lighted up the wild but comfortable scene, dancing in the lights and shadows of the overhanging trees. End of chapter 6, part 1